Let's study God's word. We're in 1 Samuel, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 18 through 24. Just a few verses there, uh, but they really don't fit anywhere else. They're a unit uh, unto themselves. And uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that we go through the scripture verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we deal with what the text presents to us. We bring a message from that text. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of a unit of thought here that uh, we're going to talk about this morning. The topic we'll see there generally, the narrative is that Saul hunts down David, but instead of killing him, he ends up prophesying with no clothes on. And that's why the title of our message is Prophecy Buff. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. The joy of being together as brothers and sisters in Christ, providing this place for us and this gracious atmosphere, Lord, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are believers, we know you, you've saved us, that you would further our relationship with you today, that we'd learn more about the greatness of your love for us. And Lord, if there's anybody here that hasn't really given their heart to you. They've never been born again by your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would convince them and convict them. Convince them, Lord, that Jesus is their Savior, convicting them of their sin. We want to uh, pay attention to your word, Lord. It's going to teach us some things this morning. It's going to minister to us. We know it already, Lord, because uh, you've promised that it won't return void when it's uh, delivered and that it's living and powerful. Uh, And so I pray that you would do everything that you desire to do, which is more than we would even ask you to do, and that our lives would never be the same having come to this place on this morning by your divine appointment. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. A naked man was arrested this week in Natchez, Mississippi. I hope that's a rare occasion. Uh, At approximately 1 a.m. June 24th, Sergeant Gary Nations and Officers Marcus White and Frederick Lane were dispatched to McNeely Road and Oak Hill Drive, where they found Corey Wayne Renfro walking on the sidewalk nude. When Nations asked Renfro to stop, Renfro continued walking. When White and Lane arrived on the scene, Nations ordered the officers to take Renfro down. Nation stated Renfro was unwilling to cooperate, forcing Nations to spray Renfro with a half-second burst of pepper spray. When Renfro attempted to resume walking, White pepper sprayed Renfro a second time. As to the reason Renfro was naked, and I quote, the suspect said, I have to keep walking toward the light, and stated that he was God. Now, our text in 1 Samuel features a nude subject under the influence of God. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. So Saul went there to Naoth in Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in the manor and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, my first reaction to that is I'm glad this kind of thing doesn't happen today. You are too. Or does it? 
Well, there is a sense in which it does and that it ought to be both encouraged and expected. And so let's break down the major elements of the story to see what I'm talking about. A man comes to where believers are worshiping and coming under the influence of prophecy is naked in the presence of the Lord. Sounds a lot like these verses from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And then Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What happened to Saul is thus a physical illustration in the Old Testament of a timeless spiritual principle in the New Testament. God wants a person to come to a place where their hearts can be exposed, made naked, as it were, under the influence of spirit-inspired speech. His desire is to reveal himself to that person in order to bring them to salvation or to further their sanctification, their growth in the Lord. He wants to help them. He wants to heal them. He wants to give them hope. In our text, that place was Naoth. Today it is wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus. It is the church on earth. It is us. It is here. It is now. We must therefore be a people and a place where believers are worshiping with spirit-inspired speech so all of us can be exposed before the Lord for our own good and for His glory. Hang with me on this. It's not as weird as it sounds. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Let's be those who encourage the spirit of prophecy. And number two, let's be those who expect the spirit of prophecy. We spend a lot of time in verse 18 talking about encouraging the spirit of prophecy. Now, I'm using the word prophecy in its broadest definition. Prophecy includes both foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is the revealing of future things. That's how we normally think of something prophetic. It's a message that reveals the future. But foretelling, that's just the application of the already completed Word of God. And so whenever God's Word is brought to bear on your situation or in your life, that's a prophetic uh, foretelling of the Word giving you direction and wisdom. Now, there's a gift of prophecy that some believers are given. It's exercised in the church by direct utterance or by receiving waking visions or dreams. Our discussion today is bigger than just those with the gift of prophecy. It includes all believers understanding that we're called uh, to the spirit of prophecy. That's not my term, by the way. The spirit of prophecy comes to us from the lips of an angel in Revelation 19.10. After receiving the revelation, the Apostle John falls down before an angel. The following correction is given to him. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now the brethren refers to believers refers to the church on the earth as we await the coming of the Lord for us to resurrect and rapture us. 
we have what is here called the testimony of Jesus. We're the ones privileged to go about as witnesses giving testimony to the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the coming again of the God-man, Jesus Christ. We're the ones with the authority to tell sinners that their sins are forgiven at the cross and that they can be born again and receive the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. We're the ones with this testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He's come and He's died and He's risen from the dead so that men who are sinners can be saved for time and for eternity. We're the ones who have the testimony of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, this testimony actually includes everything revealed in the Bible about Jesus, and that's why it's described as the spirit of prophecy. It certainly means that Jesus is the subject of all Bible prophecy through the centuries. But it also means that our speaking about Jesus ought to be thought of as being spirit-inspired in such a way that both non-believers and believers have their hearts exposed before the Lord so that they know that God is in our midst. Most of us have experienced this. It's nothing weird It's not uncommon for someone to say after a service, you were talking directly to me. Well, I wasn't, but the Lord was. It's the spirit of prophecy. It is spirit-inspired speech. Have you experienced that? I think you have. I have. Where you know that God is talking to you. The pastor or the Bible study leader is just going on. You know, they're in a particular area of Scripture. It's a Bible study or a Sunday morning service or a Wednesday night service or something like that. And then you have the sense, though, that if you were the only person there, the same message would be delivered because it's really for you. It's about you. It's God coming into contact with you. Here's all I'm saying. That experience should not be an isolated every now and then experience. It ought to happen really every time Christians gather, every time the word is emphasized, because the testimony of Jesus is always the spirit of prophecy, not just once in a while, not just when something terrible is happening in my life, not not just when I feel like it. The testimony of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the teaching about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It means it has a power, it has an anointing, it is out there to do this spiritual surgery in our lives. God either wants to save you or to further your salvation, to further your sanctification. Those are the two things that he wants to do. And so if a person is here this morning, for example, and you've never been born again, you've never confessed your sin really to Jesus Christ and believe that there's no hope for you apart from the grace of God, uh, then that is the ministry of the Word and the Spirit-inspired speech, not just coming from the pulpit, but from everything that we do, from the worship and from every believer, this understanding that there is a spiritual emphasis, a spiritual power, a spiritual anointing, so that unbelievers, non-believers, will be brought to faith in Jesus Christ, brought under the conviction of sin and convinced that Jesus is their only hope. Or if we're believers that we would be encouraged to grow in our walk with the Lord, to stir up the gift that is in us, to further our sanctification and to bring forth fruit a hundredfold in abundance. 
Either way, your heart needs to be exposed and that requires the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not just learning some things about the Word, not just figuring out where places are on a map and, and having the facts. All of that is important. We have to have everything in place. But God wants to do something supernatural in your heart. Okay, let's say we're on board with all this. How do we encourage this spirit of prophecy? Well, let's take a look at our text for its illustration. Verse 18. So David fled and escaped. He went to Samuel at Ramah, told him all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now King Saul had tried to enlist the aid of both his son Jonathan and his daughter, David's wife Michael, to help him kill David. Instead, they helped him and he fled for his life. He went to Samuel at Ramah. Samuel, the aging prophet, was David's choice for aid and assistance. Samuel was not a warrior. He had no army. He didn't even have a personal bodyguard. There were no defenses at Ramah. It was a purely spiritual move on David's part. He could expect no real physical help from Samuel in the sense of, of defense. One way then we encourage the spirit of prophecy is to remain convinced that our help is essentially spiritual and will come from the Lord. When we instead look to the world, to its methods, we discourage the supernatural and we are left to our own devices. For about the past 25 years at least, the church of Jesus Christ on earth has been moving away from the, what they used to call soul care. Counsel from the Word, prayer, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to solve a person's problems. And they've moved into the realm of what they call Christian psychology. And I don't want to talk about that right now except to say that it ain't working. Christian psychology doesn't work. People are worse off for it. But there is a fundamental shift at some point because we thought, well, these things, prayer, Bible study, discipleship, obedience, all the things that go into being a disciple, they seem somehow insufficient in our advanced scientific culture now that we have so much understanding of the human mind. We have no understanding of the human soul or of the Spirit, apart from what the Word of God says. God says, I discern between the soul and the Spirit. Not Abraham Maslow, not Carl Jung, not Sigmund Freud. You don't have to lay on a couch. You have to have devotions. Maybe get on your knees. Now, this is not to say that there aren't people with real organic problems. Yes, there are people who have brain damage or whose we don't really understand the, the nature of it. We say that they have a chemical imbalance, which is a catch-all. There are people who have real organic problems for whom medication can help. We've dealt with them over the years. We love them. They're welcome here. We don't tell them to throw their medicine away and, and all of that. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the average run-of-the-mill everyday Christian who now doesn't believe that their problems can be solved biblically through discipleship. 
but they're looking for help elsewhere. And so one of the ways that we promote spirit uh, anointed speech and the spirit of prophecy is to remain grounded in the understanding that if you don't have brain damage and if you don't have an organic problem, you're going to be helped by Jesus Christ, by prayer and all of this. People say, well, that doesn't work. Hey, I see the ads on TV. People who are taking one psychotic drug, now they're telling them if that doesn't work for you, take this other one with it. So it ain't working. It takes time, takes obedience, takes discipleship, but we want to remain grounded in that. If you're hurting today, if you need help, it's going to be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so pray and seek the Lord in His Word. Get into or remain in fellowship with believers. David told Samuel all that Saul had done to him. Samuel's counsel, his plan, let's go to Naoth. And so David comes and he says, Saul's trying to kill me. He enlisted the help of Jonathan and Michael. And Samuel says, best place for us is Naoth. Now, Naoth was not the name of a city so much as it was a description of a place. Archaeologists say it was a place with lots of small housing units. The best way for us to understand it is to call it a college. It was a place Samuel had begun as a school of prophets. It was where he was overseeing the training and equipping, equipping rather, of the next generation of spiritual leaders in Israel. Another way to encourage the spirit of prophecy is to understand that our gatherings are to train and equip us for the work of the ministry. It's to emphasize that most of the ministry a church does is outside its walls as its members go to their respective missions out in the communities. Now, that suggests at least two things to me. Number one, we should always be careful to not become ingrown, cliquish, and separatist. There are times for the church to meet, and there's nothing wrong with believers getting together as often as they want, but we always have to be careful to remember that we're also to be equipped for the work of the ministry, which isn't always with our friends and the people that we want to be around. It's where we work and recreate and do all these other things. And so we have to have an outward view. But neither, secondly, should we think that belonging to a local fellowship is somehow optional. And so this is another extreme that Christians go to. One, they don't really want to be around non-Christians or people in the world. Those are like the enemy almost. They only want to be around Christians doing Christian things. But secondly, there's a lot of people today who if you talk to them, they say, I don't need the church. They always tell you that the church let them down. Uh, and you know what? I'm sure the church did. Because the church is what? It's a bunch of people. And what do people do? They let you down. And I would say to them, you're letting the church down. You have gifts, talents, abilities. God has called you to minister to people and you refuse to come to church. So you're, you're a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're worried that the church lets you down? You're letting the church down. So it's an endless thing, but more and more people are thinking, I don't need the church. Uh, and so those are two extremes that are suggested. We need to know that we're to be about the normal Christian life of belonging to the local church so that we can be equipped to do the work of the ministry out in our community, come back in and get re-equipped. We also need to know what went on at Naoth. When we read the remaining verses, we see that the prophets were busy 
doing what prophets do. They were prophesying. I think the best way for us to understand that is to say that they were worshiping the Lord. The application for us is to remember that everything we do is to be about Jesus, about giving clear testimony to him. On a practical level, I'm to be looking out to see how I can reveal Jesus to those around me constantly. It's a paradox of biblical Christianity that if I am to receive ministry from the Lord, I must look to minister to others in order to find my life. I must first lose it. I thus need a heightened awareness of what is going on around me. Spider-Man has spidey senses. He was always one of my favorite superheroes because he had that crazy spidey sense. If we want, we can have spirit senses. But we need to actively decide that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We need to believe that something supernatural this way comes whenever we are gathered together with the Lord in our midst. And with that kind of belief and understanding, then God will give us a sense of how to minister to a person, what to say to a person. It it works in strange ways sometimes, but it works. Now let's get back to our story. Saul is going to find David at Naoth, and in those verses we're going to see that we want to be those who expect the spirit of prophecy. How could David be saved by hanging out at a college for prophets? This is a stupid plan. Uh, humanly speaking. Saul, the king of Israel, with his entire army, is trying to find me and kill me. Where will I be safe? At a college for prophets, where there are no weapons and no defenses. Well, as it turned out, it was the only place he really was safe. And so verse 19, now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Now, these messengers weren't just guys from Western Union with an invitation to return from Saul. Saul requires your presence. Stop. We're going to kill you. Stop. You know, that kind of a thing. Anybody ever get a telegram? I've never gotten a telegram. I always wanted to. But they're always kind of, they're weird. Don't they have bad news most of the time? They have a bad reputation. These guys were armed soldiers sent to take David into custody. Should have been an easy task. As I mentioned, there was no garrison at Naoth, not even campus security. David seemed totally vulnerable. It's a picture of throwing yourself upon the mercy of the Lord. If the Lord didn't help David, there was no help for him and there was no hope for him. He was just going to go to the place of worship and hang out there. And as to the application, we must expect that anyone who gathers with us can and will be helped by Jesus and that he is their hope. It may involve you in some way. The Holy Spirit may want to speak to you about helping others. In fact, he does want to speak to you about helping others. The only question is always, am I listening? If I am, if you are, all kinds of things can be set in motion. I don't know how many times in my life and in the lives of others, just, you know, being together with other Christians, God uses that time and says, here's what I want you to do. Here's a ministry that I have for you. Here's some hurting people that need your help. 
Here's a challenge for you, whatever it might be. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful, it doesn't have to happen at church. It uh, doesn't, you know, it can happen just walking around. But uh, it, this is all part and parcel of just being a Christian and sitting under the teaching of the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, another lesson we can glean is to do everything in our power to maintain our fellowship as a safe haven. God wants to minister to people. His work can be hindered when we allow strife and division or gossip and backbiting or distractions even. When we break into factions over some issue, it hurts the gospel. Remember, we want our testimony to be the spirit of prophecy, not the human spirit of our own selfishness. Would to God that the church would never be a place, any church, would never be a place where people say, have you heard about this church? Yeah, I've heard about them. Its members are going through a division. They're fighting with each other over the color of the carpet or over this or over that. Would to God that it would be a place where you say, yeah, my friend went there and their life was changed dramatically. I've been meaning to go myself, but I'm, I'm almost afraid to go because there's a sense that something's going to happen there. Our gatherings are to be understood as a spiritual stronghold place where everyone is safe and therefore able to experience the transparency of God, exposing their hearts for their own good and for His glory. The idea of a safe haven requires that we maintain physical priorities, such as literally making sure we are safe and secure. It requires we be organized, almost deliberate, so as to promote proper biblical spiritual boundaries within which God works. That's right, within which God works. Too often, Christians think God can only work outside the box, as it were, when all boundaries are supposedly eliminated. Somehow they think that a free-for-all is the best atmosphere for worship, that anything organized automatically quenches the Holy Spirit. I would believe that if it weren't for what I read in the Bible. When we went through 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 14, we saw God's prescription for the healthy, normal worship of the church in which the testimony of Jesus was the spirit of prophecy. The Apostle Paul argued that there must be order in order for anything truly spiritual to occur. He says, look, you want something spiritual to happen? You want the unbeliever or the uninformed to come in and have their lives radically changed? then bring some order to your disorderly conduct. And here are some points that I want to make about that. We have a sense, even sometimes as, as more conservative Christians, that when something, well, that, that it, nothing is happening unless something really unusual and wild is happening. Something that we can look at and say, wow, something happened today. And I've seen people over the years, they, they become drawn to more of the uh, physical, more of the sensational, thinking that, well, nothing's happening by just teaching the word or praying for people or doing these other things. You, you have to have this and that. You have to let go of all the restraints and get out of any boundary. You're putting God in a box. And, and I, I, go for, I really would. I would go for that if it weren't for the Apostle Paul, if it weren't for the inspired word of God, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit teaching us that, yeah, I never said that. Here's what I said. I said that there needs to be some order. And within that order, there can be the freedom for the Spirit to work. Three groups of soldiers failed to arrest David, but were themselves, we would say, arrested by God. Saul figured if you want to do something right, I guess you're going to have to do it yourself. So he went to Ramah, 
then to Naoth. In verse 22, then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Sekiu. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Yes, this is weird. I'm with you there. I don't think there's anything normal about this. Even by Old Testament standards, it's pretty strange. But remember, the new is in the old contained while the old is in the new explained. What happened to Saul is an illustration of what God wants to happen to us all spiritually whenever we worship. It's nothing more but nothing less than the Spirit of God applying the Word of God to affect heart surgery, to discern between the soul and the spirit of a person in order to save that person or to further their walk with Jesus Christ. It bothers some that Saul prophesied. My thinking all along has been that he was a believer but a severely backslidden believer. The fact he was able to prophesy shouldn't really upset us. We went through Corinthians. You remember, God wasn't necessarily using people who were absolutely pure. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of uh, carnal people, a lot of carnality and sin in that church, even though there was also a mad speaking with tongues and prophesying and all these other kinds of gifts. And so we need to get over the idea that God only uses people who are super spiritual in those ways. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes the person that is the most vocal, that is the most vibrant almost in their worship, has a lot of problems. And so we can't go on that outward. At the same time, the appearance of things supernatural by themselves are no guarantee of lasting spirituality. Saul went on to get even worse in his disobedience and rebellion. Even after God so mightily comes upon him here and causes him to prophesy, a few chapters from now, he's going to end up going to a witch and having a seance to conjure up Samuel to inquire about what he should do. Uh, Saul is a, uh, he's the carnal Christian uh, and uh, it's, it's a very interesting study. We're not talking about having an exercise of spiritual gifts for the sake of reveling in the supernatural. Just because people seem to be moving in the spirit, as Christians say, it's no measure of their spirituality. After all, even Judas cast out demons and worked other miracles. Does that bother you? It bothers me, but it's true nonetheless. And since it's true, we extrapolate from that that just doing external, outward spiritual things doesn't make a person spiritual. It's no real measure of their spirituality. So that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about some crazy new emphasis on spiritual gifts. No, we're talking about a balanced, a biblical atmosphere within which God can and will move upon our hearts as He so desires. It will involve certain manifestations from time to time because He says it will, But the real impact will be deep in our hearts and we'll know if it is, if there is an ongoing, lasting transformation of character and conduct. There are a lot of things we might expect when we gather together as believers. 
We would expect to have a great children's ministry, inspirational quality worship, insightful study of God's word, reports of things God is doing or God wants to do, and time to catch up with friends. Beyond those, or perhaps I should say within those, we are to expect the spirit of prophecy. We are to expect that God is speaking directly to us, to me, all the time, every time. I don't know what to compare it to since it's so unique, but let me try to give you what will turn out to be a poor example. By the way, when you hear these amazing examples and illustrations, they're mostly made up. They're not true, but you know, most examples, they somehow fail, and mine will too. We've all been to the doctor. We usually go either to have a well checkup or when something is definitely troubling us. Perhaps most of the time we look at church as a well checkup. We're doing okay, we're keeping our lives in balance, we're looking for ways to further our spiritual health. That's good as far as it goes. But I think sometimes we don't really hear from God when that's our attitude. If I come and I think, well, I'm okay, I'm doing fine. Uh, Maybe I'll learn something, maybe I'll hear something, but maybe not. After all, I've blown off physical exams. My last annual physical was four years ago. I think of it as a luxury, even though it could potentially be life-saving. I mean, if you ask me, should you have a physical every... Absolutely. Do you? No. Why not? It's a hassle. And I feel pretty good. And I think sometimes that's our attitude towards fellowship, towards church, towards the Word of God. It's like, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm doing great. I'm sure I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'll go to church. I like going to church, but I like doing other things too. And so, you know, I'll kind of balance that out. We can look at worship that way. It's good. I probably should do it, but it's not an absolute necessity. We should instead think of our gatherings as an important appointment we must keep. Not that we come always morbidly thinking there's something wrong with us, but certainly it's more than a well visit. It's a visit to surgery, to heart surgery, where the Spirit of God wants to use the Word of God to discern between the soul and the Spirit. Once inside, he can show you what is there. Maybe something does need to be removed, cut out, eliminated. If so, he can catch it early. But maybe, too, something needs to be inserted or added. Speaking of hearts and switching illustrations, some of us are like the Grinch. Even though we are believers, our hearts need to grow three sizes. And they will as we worship the Lord in our Naoth. In fact, our hearts should always be growing. We always should have, spiritually speaking, enlarged hearts. Physically, you don't want to have an enlarged heart. That's a problem. But spiritually speaking, God wants to continue to enlarge our heart all the time. There need to be new revelations of His love and His mercy and His grace. New challenges in ministry. New stretches, I like to call them. Outside of our comfort zone. We've decided we can't do this, we can't go there, we can't afford that, we can't, etc., etc. And then God wants to come to us under the Spirit-inspired Word and say, yes, you can, if you trust me. I'm calling you to this. Will you follow me? Will you do this? Here's a person that has need. Here's a situation I want you to minister to, to give towards whatever it might be. Let's break out of this idea that we're just humming along, that everything's fine. If anything big comes along, we'll be ready for it and start thinking that God wants to speak to us all the time in his still small voice. Now, I told you this was a poor illustration, but I think you get the point. Expectation is important. If you're not expecting God to really do anything, to say anything, then he probably won't or at least you won't hear it. And so let's expect. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning. And I pray, Lord, that this would be one of those mornings that all of us would say that you were speaking directly to us, giving us wisdom and insight about who you are and how we can better serve you. Cause our hearts to enlarge, Lord, with a sense of your greatness and what we can accomplish if we uh, set ourselves apart to that. If there's anybody here, Lord, who is hurting, needs help, is lacking hope, I pray that they would see that you supply all of those things in abundance in relation to them. Bless them, Lord. And if there's anyone here that's not a believer, that you would convince them of their need and convict them of it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.